So hey, it's been a while since we have done an Art Dirt podcast. I'm Rainy Knutson. I'm Christina Reese. Boy, howdy. What a week of news. Hmm. Golly. Um. We have a few things we want to talk about this week. Uh, we're going to focus on the art world, even though there are larger events in the world going on that merit discussion, certainly. But there were a few things that we uh, thought stood out this week. It was a week of heavy art news, was it not? Yeah, it was. I mean, regionally and I guess nationally and internationally. So you were in Austin this weekend. I was, yeah. You were on the Austin scene. You were on Austin. I was was all over it. (laughs) I was down there for, primarily I was down there to see the Texas Biennial, Mm -hmm. the newest iteration of it. It opened over the weekend. Um, How was it? Well, funny you should ask. (laughs) You know, I... I've been going over and over this in my head for the last 24 hours. I think the show itself is really fun. I think it's really fine. And I like a lot of the artists in the show, and I liked a lot of the artworks in the show. I think that the Texas Biennial, as an idea, mm-hmm. uh, organized by and administered by Big Medium, is just inherently compromised. How come? Primarily, I think, money. I think funding. You know, whether a curator is going to pick three artists or 33 artists, which in this case it was 33 artists, or 66 artists or 133 artists, it doesn't matter. I think there needs, I would like to see a tremendous amount of money behind something that calls itself the Texas Biennial, if it's going to represent the entire state and what this state, what this state's artists are capable of. And I would like to see it be huge and spectacular and citywide, whether it's in Austin or San Antonio or wherever they're going to put it on any given year. Uh-huh. And I think that there should just be a, t- a ton of money behind it. I think that this there have been problems with it every time it's rolled out. Um, some of them are, I think, more apparent than others. I don't, I don't have any particular problem with this particular biennial. Um, other than the fact that I'm not sure it should be called the Texas Biennial. I think it should be called the, you know, the Big Medium Open Show or the Big Medium Biennial. Mm. Or, you know what I mean? The name is too grand, you mean? It's so grand. It's such a grand thing. And the idea that people who don't normally see art or don't see a lot of art are going to be drawn to this because it's called the Texas Biennial. Or the idea that people are going to come in from out of state and think, well, okay, this is the, this is the whole deal. It's like, well... You know, obviously you and I have such a different picture of what, what art is in Texas because we see it all the time and we see so much of it. Do you think people are coming in for this? I don't know the answer to that. You know, the party was really big and I saw people from other places. You know, old friends from all, all over Texas had driven in. It's true, although some of them were there with their friends who were in the show. So, so you, you're saying you feel like the Texas Biennial should be big and spectacular, the implication being that this is not... This is a solid group show in an interesting space. I think there are some very good artists in the show, and I think there are some nice artworks in the show. What, what's the interesting space? It's in a big furniture warehouse. You actually have to, it's in a kind of an industrial street. You pull up, you can't even see that the, you know, the, the Texas Biennial is in the building. You've got to cross through a functional, open, real furniture showroom before you even get into the warehouse space where the Texas Biennial is. I kind of liked the venue, actually. I spoke to one attendee who told me that it felt like he was in an Ikea surrounded by people and he just wanted to get out. 
You know what I think? I think what I really wanted, knowing some of these artists and their work and having looked at various bodies of their work over the years and some new new artists as well, I just feel like if there had been more money and more resources, they would have all had a little bit more room to stretch out. Mm-hmm. And uh, that would have been really nice because I know what a lot of these artists are capable of. And I think... Well, that's the thing. When you think about the big biennials, and of course the Whitney's the sort of gold standard in the United States, although there are certainly biennials elsewhere in the world that are a big deal, you know, there's a there's some serious institutional heft behind that thing, and they work on it, and the artists have a long time to prepare, and there's some money to ship their work, to insure their work, to help them, you know, realize projects that are large-scaled and ambitious. Well, this is also the thing that makes the Texas Biennial not seem like what we think of as biennials traditionally, is that it's an open call. And Mm. so it's just whoever has applied. I mean, that's who the curators have to choose from is who has bothered to apply. Well, that's the thing. When when I saw the list, and we talked about this, there were certainly artists who we we think absolutely deserve to be there and we love their work. Yes. But there are a lot of people. If you want to just say this is a snapshot of the best art being made in Texas, this ain't it. You know, there's a lot of people who should be in a show, if that's the definition of the show, who are not in this show. Yeah. Which begs the question... Well, what is the definition of, definition of this show? Because there's a lot of people nobody's ever heard of in this show. Are they really trying to focus on emerging artists? I think that a, bi- a good biennial should should have both. I think that there a good biennial should be able to go out and uncover emerging artists who are doing really interesting work and pair them up or put them alongside really established career artists who are you know at the height of their career, the height of their art making. And I think that everything contextualizes everything else. There are some stronger, older artists in this show, so it's not that there were no, like, really established artists in the show. That wasn't the problem. But then again, you know, you're wondering if it's called a Texas Biennial who didn't apply. And there's a, there is an absence there. You know, I mean, there's no, you know, Havel and Rock are not in the show. Trent Hancock's not in the show. Vincent Valdez is not in the show. Uh, many, many um, people who are doing... Rachel Hecker's newest body of work is killer. That's the thing is I think some of these, like very heavy-hitting older artists or established artists in Texas, they're not going to fool with this thing. Yeah, Eric Swenson, I mean, what, is he going to apply? I, I don't even know if he would have known about it, you know? <laughs> Frankly. Francesca Fuchs, I mean, people who are just always, always good. We could rattle off a list. It's What's interesting about this, you know, you bring up the term ambition. I've been paying attention to the Texas Biennial since its very earliest iteration, and it was initially sort of generated by people in Austin who wanted to do this thing and get it going, and it was for, for the first, like, three Texas biennials, probably at least. Everyone else in Texas regarded it as basically an Austin phenomenon and just an Austin thing. And it did show more Austin artists than not. And so I've never thought of it as ambitious, quite frankly. I do think that the curator, Leslie Moody Castro, did make an effort to get around and do a lot of site visits and a lot of studio visits this year. But again, when you have an open call, you are automatically, unless you, like, beg people to apply who you need in the show they're not go- they're not gonna apply unless they feel like it's gonna be at a big institution and have some respect behind it frankly yeah because she showed up in these towns in person she may have been able to talk some people into applying who hadn't done so I, I would like to believe that's true and I think that it did get out into into kind of some regions of Texas that the Texas Biennial hasn't done before. That's a step in the right direction. I was a curator of the last one. We didn't have resources for travel. We were actually really meant to sit at home on our laptops 
and go through applications as they came in and deal with what whatever was happening in our re- in our own region. That's why they picked 12 or 13 of us. But there were no resources for us to curate the show, you know? Well, and also, if there are 12 or 13 curators, you say you were a curator, but it's not like you were able to put a stamp on this show or, or, or have any real, like, this is Christina's vision for the show. No, no, and it also meant that, I, you know, I don't know what the investment level was for all of us uh, in the end. I don't feel like... There were certainly people who phoned it in. Yeah, well, you know, we were we were I think chosen based on whatever region we were in to pick to know about the artists who were on the ground in our own region and pick the best artists we could of the applications that we had. I mean, we weren't supposed to get in on our cars and go. But I think it's I think it was a good idea to send a curator out on the road. Oh, I think so too. I agree completely. So you would say and again, you've seen this, I have not seen the the show. The verdict is either they need to change the name because the name is overly grandiose for the reality of the product, mm-hmm. or they need to enlist some kind of supporter, backer, institutional partner, whatever, to really bring some heft to this thing. Yeah, and you could get into the systemic problems of Texas money and philanthropy versus you know government money. And I think that any nonprofit or institution or big, big medium are going to be hamstrung by just the, just the problems inherent in the system of trying to find big money. I mean, big money. I mean, millions of dollars. I think that the Texas Biennial should be, I think there should be millions of dollars behind it. Yeah, it should be a serious show where people really have the opportunity to like do something cool if it's going to be called the Texas Biennial. Well, one of the things that it's it's gotten a little bit of press for being politically themed or having a lot of politics. Do you, is that true of the works in the show? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it. Not not all of it, but a lot of it. And I think that um, for the most part, the artists who are delivering more political work did a nice job. Um, I wanted to see political work in this show. I think that that's timely. I think that that's... I think it makes sense right now. Uh, I don't think that everything has to be political. I don't think all the work was. But I, yeah, I mean, it was, I, I think that's the time we're living in. I, that... Oh, I think so, too. It's interesting. The same, my same friend who said that it felt like it was an Ikea showroom also commented on the fact that it was politically themed and liked that it was politically themed, but also said that none of the work really inspired any reaction from him. Well, again, I think that if there had been a lot more money and a lot more space, a lot more time, a lot more resources, that any one of these artists could have made more work and spread out a little bit. And and probably you know in the in the long run um, with a whole lot more resources, any Texas biennial is just going to be more convincing for your friend who thought of it as an IKEA sh- showroom. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I think that big medium seems to kind of rejig this thing every time, and it still hasn't landed on a on a oh, a winning ticket. A winning ticket, yeah, of a, a formulation that works. I think like if it were at a museum, and it were there was some money behind it. Well, then people would show up. Then the artists would shine in a way that they're not able to shine right now. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. I don't. I I admire the impulse to have a Texas Biennial. I like it that they keep trying new things. I think there were some successful things about this. I think that there were some some shortcomings to it, but that was more. Um, it has a lot more to do with resources than anyone's than anyone's misdirection. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and well, that's kind of where I am with it. Well, speaking of politics, mm. moving swiftly on to our second topic, mm. animal videos. Yeah, we can talk about the Guggenheim and 
whether it failed to contextualize these uh these videos made by Chinese artists. Okay, so just so everyone knows what's going on, the Guggenheim Museum has a show of conceptual Chinese art. So it's not the Chinese con- contemporary art that everyone kind of knows and loves slash hates of the pop art, big shiny things. This is more obscure to American audiences anyway, Chinese art. And during the aughts, particularly, a lot of these artists were doing these projects um, that were much more edgy and much more politically themed. And the Guggenheim's doing this show, and they came under huge fire, like crazy uh, social media pressure to remove three works from the, the upcoming show, and they did. And they're three works that specifically involve animals and cruelty to animals. There was a, tr- a tremendous amount of hand-wringing over this. I do think that two of the pieces probably wouldn't have been removed if it hadn't been for the dog piece, which was much more showy. Uh, I think that's what brought people's attention to the whole issue. Ironically, though, no dogs die in the dog piece, whereas lots of other critters die in the other pieces. Yeah. But they're only insects, so who cares about a scorpion? Well, you know, I mean, people <laughs> do have a tendency to uh, rank the status of animals based on how, you know, their own, their own idea of what sentience is. But So you have strong feelings about this. I have strong feelings that I don't, you know, I think that, that the depiction of suffering in art, which has been going on for centuries. Millennia. A millennia is good artists are perfectly capable of doing that without killing something or someone directly in the process of making the artwork. And I think that, I really think that using the suffering of animals as spectacle is cheap. And I think it's a one-liner and I think it's sensationalism and I think it's, I think it's not impressive. I also can't watch it, to be honest with you. Well, one thing that's interesting, because Ben Davis wrote a really, really good uh, piece about this subject on Artnet. Yeah, it's great. It's so it's it's incredibly well researched, and it was it was so good at providing all this context that I guess the museum had failed to provide for people. But you know, the knee jerk thing and all the circular firing firing squad stuff that we're talking about right now, there was no time really. I don't think for the museum to fully contextualize this without the petition going around. Well, that but of- that was Ben's point was how shockingly short it was like four or five days between the yeah. first article coming out in the New York Times about this show and the Guggenheim saying, we're taking these pieces out. I mean, I, less than a week, it's crazy. Yeah, it's that, that's, how, that's how quickly this kind of, this kind of anger is, is spread now. But, you know, I think that there was a misleading headline in the New York Times shortly after the petition started to go around. One was that, you know, a lot of artists and art professionals are very disappointed in the Guggenheim for pulling the works out and that all of the, all of the petitions were started by these absolutely bloodthirsty you know, so to speak, um, you know, animal rights <laughs> activists who were violent and they were threatening, you know, the safety of the people who worked at the Guggenheim, et cetera. I think a lot of artists had a problem with these videos, with the video as well. On my social media, some of the petitions were started by artists. Well, one thing that's interesting, and, and I think Ben Davis referenced this a little bit in his piece, is the difference between the way animals are perceived and treated in developing countries versus developed countries. And I certainly, certainly saw this, you know, in the mid-90s when I lived in Mexico, 
the sensitivity towards animals, the care towards animals that we feel in the United States is not a global phenomenon, not whatsoever. I think as people become more prosperous, they start to care more about animals because they can. And before that, it's, it's a fairly dispassionate, you know, if you will, Old Testament biblical view of like dominion over nature. And so what was interesting was the artist, one of the artists who did this dog video, and we should just explain, in the dog video, they have fighting dogs so essentially pit bulls or pit bull mixes on treadmills, chained to the treadmills, running, lunging at each other and running until they separate them and they can't see each other and they stop running. Mm-hmm. So it's basically just dogs running at each other, trying to attack each other, but they can't because they can't get at each other. Um, but the artist who made that piece, one of the artists who made that piece, also did a thing where they took... Um, lobsters and eels and crustaceans and various sort of sea life uh, and bought them from a marketplace and then impaled them on sticks and made a giant curtain with their writhing, dying bodies Mm -hmm. and filmed them dying. Mm -hmm. And this was the art. And the artist said about this piece, well, these animals were going to get eaten anyway. We got this from a fish market. So these things were destined for your dinner table anyway. Yeah, I know she said that. You know, for me, there's a a level of... (laughs) cultural relativism that I just don't particularly buy into. And it's about uh, either glamorizing the pain and suffering of living things or, or using it as a tool or fetishizing it or fet- I mean, you know, female genital mutilation, you know, no, I don't give a fuck that it's the thing to do in 27 to 30 countries in the world. I just don't think it should be happening. I don't think that, I don't think that our companion animals, the animals that really have, you know, come up through uh, thousands of years with us, horses and dogs. And when I look at artwork that is, that really communicates ideas about suffering, the ones that stick with me, whether it's Goya Mm -hmm. or Kara Walker or Picasso's Guernica or Louise Bourgeois or, you know, Bruce Connor. They just, they didn't, they didn't have to hurt or kill something in the process of making what they make. Mm -hmm. When you show me a work of art that I think effectively communicates suffering where something is being made to suffer unconsensually, I'll, you know, maybe change my mind about this, but I'm not there. I'm not nearly there. So how do you feel? So, I I mean, I think you and I are probably on the same page in that it's kind of gross and it's no different than, you know, people watching Christians having their arms ripped off by lions in the Colosseum or, or gladiators or whatever. It's the spectacle of gore and suffering, which is inherently interesting to humans, and we like to see it. Let's face it, as a species, we like the spectacle of suffering. But assuming that we agree that these videos are not necessarily a good idea, but that they do accurately reflect something that was really happening in China at the time, ironically, before the Communist Party cracked down on this. Yeah, the type of artwork being made. Yes, it is, that, is, that is a real thing. Yes. They, they cracked down on this, on this sort of animal suffering art trend that was going on in China. And Ben mm. Davis makes the point that, that the artists were doing it because they have so few avenues of protest and this is something that they were doing as a way to protest the um, repression and brutality of the regime and that's what Ai Weiwei has said as well who is upset about the Guggenheim cutting these artworks from their show what do you think about the Guggenheim cutting the artworks from the show do you want to hear what I have to say yeah I do well I think that they they shouldn't have done it they either needed to 
include it and and make a cogent defense for it, which, mm-hmm. again, Davis in his art net piece says that they did not make a cogent defense for it. It was just a bunch of gobbledygook arc speak bullshit where they're trying to just sort of talk around this issue. Or they needed to not include it at all. In the first place. In the first place. Right. Or they need to say, we're going to do a show and this is going to be horrible, everybody. This is horrible. So we need to tell you right up front, this is bad. And the mm-hmm. reason we're doing it is this. And it really has to do with this repressive regime in China. And this is why. And you need to, but, you need to, you need to understand that what these people are dealing with is a system that you, you and I living in the United States have, have really no idea what it's like to live under. And they didn't say that. Uh, yeah, I, I mostly agree with that, although I, I still get, I personally stumble earlier in the argument, which is I just don't think artists should be using animals and art in a way that forces the animal to suffer or die. Uh, I think artists can use living animals in their artwork effectively. I've seen it. Um, and I, oh, and sure. I, I mean, you know, there's actually some really, really nice examples of it out there, but. But furthermore, not only should they not do this, but they certainly shouldn't be rewarded for it. By having a show at the Guggenheim. And I think that some of the artists who were signing petitions early on and circulating these, that's that's their ethical stance. And I think, you know, what we all want or what we think we want or what we hope for is that, you know, the notions of the Enlightenment should be spreading outward and getting bigger over the centuries, not retracting and not getting rolled back. So we call for higher and higher ethical standards every day. And right now... That's especially, I mean, look at what's happening with the NFL and the idea about the players and traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. Everyone's just now figuring out that maybe there's a little bit of a Roman Coliseum thing going on there too, you know? But that is the moment that we're living in right now. I think that this dog fighting video uh, or the dogs running on the treadmill video, I think five or ten years ago, this would have kind of almost gotten a free pass. So how do you feel about this swift internet reaction? tsunami of denouncement if you will i think that's what we're living with and i think a lot of museums should wake up and take notice and um and be super prepared for backlash because that's the world we're living in right now it it really did seem like the guggenheim was taught was caught totally off guard like they were not ready for this and they were fairly cavalier frankly and and whatever sort of argument they had made for including these videos in the show. But that being said, I'm never comfortable with cutting artwork out of a show. I just, at the end of the day, I don't like that. It's so strange because given how how much institutions and museums have come under fire, even just in the past 10 months or so, like the Walker and stuff like that, you know, it seems like every museum should be bracing itself for somebody out there being really pissed off and being really loud about it and trying to... I don't know, control the dialogue. Which, which is an argument that museums need to more than ever show real courage and step up to the plate and say, and if they want to show something that's going to be difficult for somebody, like really then they need, make an then argument Then they need to it. hire Ben Davis to write their <laughs> statement about the show is what they all need to do. He's going to have a, like a second career of being the guy who contextualizes everything. So in, in plain, in plain language that we can yes. all understand. God. No, I, I just, I, I really think that the backlashes that are occurring are, they're not unwarranted at all, but they're also very disturbing. And the silencing effect is, and chilling effect. And what's going to happen is museums will just start to self-censor. Oh, of course. Because they don't want to, they don't have to go. I think they the already show. are. 
I think they already are. When I saw in Ben's article that the artist, when he was notified, one of the artists was notified that their piece had been cut from the show, hadn't mm. even heard from the museum. They were hearing from the New York Times first. I mean, no, shame, a fumble, shame on the museum. How you want to talk about like a museum's first duty is to the artists. It is. I, I think before the audience yeah. or anybody else, their first duty is to the artists. And for them to like yeah. throw them out there on the <laughs> to the lions is awful. Ooh, yeah, they're, they're protecting their staff from you know violent threats by PETA followers, and yet they're. Yeah, they're throwing the the artists under the bus. And the artists don't even realize that their work's been cut from the show. That's Jeez. pretty bad. Okay. Yeah. On that note. On that note, let's talk about sex. Yeah, and oppression. <laughs> Hugh Hefner died this week. He sure did. He was old. That dirty old man. He's dead. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, he is. I, I know you want to talk about this, and I've got to say, I don't feel like I'm necessarily the best person to talk about this or represent two sides of a coin because... You and I probably are on the same, you know, come from this from the same angle, I bet. Mm. You know, what was really interesting about his death and all the sort of chatter about him you know, that occurred, of course, at that time, was I had just come off of last week in Fort Worth seeing this show of Rococo art at the Kimball Art Museum, and it's called Casanova, and it's it's a show that's built around the narrative of Casanova's life, which, um, for those of you who don't know, he was not an artist. He was, you know, a great lover, famously, but also imprisoned and, and, and famous because of his autobiography. And so the show is, is built sort of around the themes of his autobiography, sex, imprisonment, uh, luxury, fashion, and, you know, obviously beautiful views of Venice, 18th century views of Venice from a lot of museums. But anyway, it's a very luscious show with art that, you know, when I was in, a student in university looking at Fragonard, for example, I wasn't necessarily all that interested or blown away at the time. But, but as, an adult, as an older person now, I have an appreciation for Fragonard and, and what he was up to. And they have a whole room of really salacious 18th century porn. And you can look at it through little uh, magnifying glasses that they have there. And I mean, it is graphic, kids. You know, there's a priest face down being flagellated by women and f- simultaneously filleted. It's, there's all kinds of stuff going on in the porn room. It's so funny because you've seen this show and I haven't. It's the kind of show that I would normally just rush to. I'm a huge consumer of smut and porn. I just, I'm... I just, I like it. I'm sorry. I like naked bodies. I'm very voyeuristic. I like all different kinds of pornography. And the 17th century was rife with it, as is every other century. Yeah, of course it was. (laughs) Of course it was. The cave paintings were rife with it. Oh, yeah. So it's just, it was such a pleasure to see that show and fun to see that show and fun (laughs) to see, well, and fun to see artists like taking on sex in a in a relaxed kind of a way and and oh uh, well let's talk about Hugh Hefner yeah then. well so so I'm coming off this show and like oh. I know but when something is that anachronistic it doesn't have the same impact as a contemporary piece of pornography I don't know or it ha- or it has more impact because it drives home yet again if we needed the reminder that people have always been the same that nothing has changed mm-hmm. and that this has been around forever so when people talk mm-hmm. about Hugh Hefner objectifying sex objectifying people's bodies objectifying women's bodies I'm like look the objectification of the body 
forget fragon art in the 18th century go back to the ancient roman and greek statue i mean it is all about bodies it's all about sex that's the deal I mean, I tend to objectify sort of everyone <laughs> <laughs> to some degree. So I'm, I'm, I'm really just not a saint when it comes to any of that stuff. I will say that I think there's two things I think going on with the, the Hefner playboy, you know, discussions after he died. One is that I think with patriarchy, which is a fact of our world, I think, it, you know, when men's fantasies are perpetuated and, the, you know, the mythology of the perfect woman and the, you know, I think that there are some dictates that get, that get out there and take some, you know, and, and have some power in our world and that are, that are harmful to women. Absolutely. I actually really, of I course, totally believe totally. that. I think that women, I've got to say, straight women, gay women, women with a high libido, um, you know, I don't think that I don't think anyone's fantasies are should be policed unless, you know, we go back to the, you know, the animal abuse thing, unless somebody or something's being hurt directly, mm-hmm. which a lot of people are going to argue that Hugh Hefner very much directly hurt women. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I will he say mu- that. He must be understood in the context of the post-war decade when he started up Playboy and the Leave it to Beaver, you know, Doris Day desexualization of women that was going on. Even as the beat generation, there's plenty of sex in the 50s, God knows. But the popular, overwhelming culture was all about, like, get women out of the workplace, back in the kitchen, in those circle skirts, and sweet moms and sweet wives and blah, 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 and they serve casseroles. And I think that he was... I'm not sure that he was rebelling against that. That may be a revisionist history on his part because he always talks about that now or he did at the end of, later mm-hmm, on in his yeah. life. But one thing I think he yeah. was doing was trying to at least teach men about how to be sophisticated, how to not be just lugs, and how to think about sex in a way that might be pleasurable to women. Now, that being said... There's a whole lot of gray area with Playboy, and it's not a black and white issue, and it's not something that you can easily encapsulate whatsoever. Witness, as you brought up today earlier today, Gloria Steinem's you know article about being a Playboy bunny from '63. I think she wrote that. Yeah, she went undercover. It was a really early investigative journalism piece for her, one of the first ones, and it's very well written. It's really kind of a fresh and lively piece even today. I read it this morning. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just, it's it's so exploitative. The whole sex trade is exploitative. I don't, I, I think that's true of anyone who's in it. And um, I, I, one thing that you said to me on the phone, we were talking about this yesterday or the day before while I was in Austin, we were talking about Hugh Hefner and the fact that so many of the reports are, you know, the, the op-eds that are coming out are about him being this really dirty old man and sort of the last years of his life. And the abjectness of the of the Playboy Mansion and him having six girlfriends who were all 21 years old. And he was probably a dotard, if you'll forgive the word. I mean, that's the thing. It, it's a part of it feels like this elderly shaming that, like, how dare this man at the very end of his life when he's frail and falling apart, you know, be engaging in this. And it's like, can we go back? Can we try and take the whole man and the whole span of his life? And the other thing that's really disturb me about the reaction is the way that so-called progressives and the so-called left are so puritanical and and it's almost like they're they've absorbed the prurientness if you will of our culture where we have this like overtly sexualized popular culture crazy sexualized like miley cyrus and so on and so forth alongside all the slut shaming that goes on and how dare this woman you know have sex with whenever. And so it's almost like the left has embraced this notion that if a woman is 
having a lot of sex and enjoying it, she's either a slut or she's a victim. I don't think that the I don't think that the way the sexual revolution played out in the sixties and seventies was particularly good for women because I think the whole idea of divorce of one hundred percent divorcing uh, your emotional world with intimacy from your physical one. I just don't think that does anyone any favors. I think it hurts women more than it hurts men, but I think it hurts men. But do you do you think that was the point of the sexual revolution? Divorcing your emotion? I think it started to... No, I don't think that it started out that way. I think it started to become mm-hmm. that way. Well, it disturbs me to think that there are young women in this country who are not being told that you, they should just have as much sex as they want with whomever they want, and it's there's no shame in it. The problem with it, with the whole I, the whole idea of saying, yeah, go out and have as much sex as you want to with whoever be safe, you want to, that's fine. Be safe. In a sense. But, but they're also, you know... There's a, a sense in this whatever wave of feminism we're in, is it third or fourth, you know, that these young women are meant to sort of be emulating young men in their approach to sex and sexuality. In other words, it's cold, it's hard, it's not intimate, it's, you know, it's extremely spontaneous and impersonal. But- and I still just don't think that that's doing anyone any good, men or women, gay or straight. I just don't think that that's necessarily what's... I think sex is such an unbelievably powerful force in our life. And I think that it's incredibly Contrary wise, I would argue that a lot of young men or the, the culture right now is telling young men that they need to be sensitive, they need to be emotional, they need to be caring, uh, which I think men naturally are. Uh, but, but uh, you know, when you look at the heroes of kids' movies and, and Disney movies and all this, it's like... The women are always like, yeah, girl power. And the men are always like, you need to learn to get in touch with your emotions. And so I think that's the underlying mm-hmm. current that young men are getting right now, that they, you know, they need to get in touch with their emotions. I don't know. I think that there, that predatory sexual behavior is 100% available to both genders. Now, interestingly, I spoke to somebody recently who is a middle-aged woman who was single and got on to these dating apps and the whole thing of like cougars and predatory cougars seeking out younger men to sleep with, she's, she was laughing. She's like, absolutely not the case. The case is that young men are seeking out older women to sleep with because they feel like the older women will be more interesting, will be better at sex, will be more relaxed, less hung up on their bodies, whatever, than young women. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, older mm-hmm. men almost exclusively want much younger women because they just want that hot young body. Yeah, um, that's okay for me. Sex can be very personal, very intimate, and it can also be something completely mechanical. Again, I don't want to police anyone's sex fantasies or what, they, what they're going for, as long as they're not hurting anyone. And, you know, I think it's hypocritical to some degree for feminists to say to men that they shouldn't be allowed to fantasize about a 22-year-old girl with great proportions and a great face. I mean, you know, what, what are they going to fantasize about when they're jacking off? <laughs> a Playboy centerfold, obviously. I, I guess I guess I was just disturbed when Hugh Hefner died to see all these people from the left like, good riddance and oh god this horrible dirty old man and his horrible legacy and demeaning of women and all that, all of which there is absolutely truth in it. I'm not saying that there's not, but this is a complicated subject, ladies and gentlemen, and and you cannot <laughs> and and Playboy, Playboy seems so chaste now. I mean, you know. <laughs> Somebody, some commenter somewhere was like, yeah, Playboy seemed really great to me until Hustler came out. (laughs) It's like, exactly. 
if we believe in any slippery, slippery slope, there's there's some some element to it. I mean, if you sign on to Pornhub right now and you just go to the homepage, it's like, oh, Jesus, people. Oh, it's it's gnarly. No, that is funny because the first porn I ever encountered was found under a sibling's bed who will go nameless, and it was Hustler. It wasn't Playboy. <laughs> Playboy seems so, so clean and chaste in comparison to pornography nowadays. I mean, I think visually Playboy, I think, I think Playboy was a nice thing to look at in the 70s and 80s. I was too young to appreciate it then, but seeing a back issue now. Well, and they, whether they drove the, um, you know, the trend towards more artificially enhanced or surgically enhanced bodies, or they just sort of followed that trend, Mm. they certainly were part of promoting you know, when you look at old issues of Playboy, the ladies look awfully natural versus more new, you know, newer versions or newer issues. I'm sure of Playboy. I'm talking about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, we could sit here and parse all of the, you know, all of the First Amendment things that Hugh Hefner was claiming he was, you know, such a proponent of. And we could start to break this down and say, well, but really all of it was just a bit, it was just a business model. He was just an entrepreneur and he knew what was ultimately going to be profitable and what was going to send the whatever message that he needed to send out there, which was really about men's pleasure, much more than women's pleasure. Oh, it was definitely about men's pleasure. This was a men's magazine. I listened this week to this 1999 interview he did with Terry Gross on NPR where he said this was a men's magazine. I was responding at the time to all these men's magazines that were about hunting and fishing and male bonding out in the wilderness or whatever. And none of it was about like how to be a sophisticate, how to be an urban person, how to be sexy and and please women and all this now this is Hugh- <laughs> how, how to set up your home stereo system in your cool bachelor pad totally Chicago. totally now this is admittedly hugh hefner at the end of his life you know revisionist again revisionist history i listened to that exact same interview and i you know i can admire certain aspects to his you know desire to start this magazine when he did and under those circumstances i think he i didn't believe a lot of what he said in that interview mm. i think it's really hard today to really get into the mindset of somebody before the moral majority of the 1980s and Jerry Falwell and Nancy Reagan. I think it's hard for us today to understand what the 60s and 70s felt like because the 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 Reagan era moral majority blah blah has so infused our culture. The war on drugs, it's so infused our culture at this point that it's hard to view this stuff outside of that lens. Yeah, I know. And I know the Europeans are still just looking at the U.S. and just scratching their heads like, this puritanical stuff, what is, God, what's going take on? Take the buckles off your shoes, people. <laughs> Seriously. Well, it's been quite a week, eh? Yeah, it's been a week. It looks like it's going to continue to be a week. It's going to continue to be a week. Well, meanwhile, we're going to be here looking at art in Texas. I'll be, uh, I'll be in Marfa. Oh, you're um, going to Marfa this? Oh, Solange. Yeah, starting Thursday or Friday. Brandon's going to be out there too. Solange is coming. Let's put it this way: it wasn't easy for me to find a place to stay, and that's usually really not an issue. Well, you <laughs> you have fun out there with all the beautiful people. Uh huh. And I'm gonna I'm gonna hang out in Houston and enjoy the swamp. The swamp, you still got it. It's all swampy there still for probably another. Oh, well, it's swampy there year round. Never mind. Hey, January to April, the weather is beautiful here. Oh, really? Yeah, we have a, we have four solid months of awesome weather. Yeah, but you can, in February, you can throw on a turtleneck sweater in a crisp, beautiful, no. sunny day with low humidity. Oh, yeah, you can. I think that's you just trying to use as much of your wardrobe as possible and trying to justify it. Because it happens to be 73 degrees instead of 93 degrees. All right. uh, On that note, 
Thank you to our uh, sponsor, Crush Pad Productions in Houston, Eric Jarvis, and as always, Matt Johnson for the use of your song, Fly Away. We really appreciate it. And you guys out there, go see some art. Go see some art.